for our study of these scriptures today, we will again return to these very difficult words of instruction that's given to us by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 6. They're difficult because these instructions that the Lord gives to us are so very contrary to our usual manner of thinking and response. And today, we'll give careful consideration to what the Lord Jesus intends when he speaks about the precious gift of mercy, of mercy. It seems often that we preachers will give quick and easy to remember answers to some of the deepest of theological questions. And while some of those quick and easy to remember answers can be helpful, we really must remember to go ahead and follow up with much more complete and more comprehensive explanation. And that's especially so with questions like, what does God mean when he uses this word mercy? What does God mean when he uses the word mercy? What does he mean when he uses the word grace? And what is the difference between mercy and grace? And especially though, how are you and I supposed to apply the concepts of mercy and grace within the circumstances of our daily lives. One of those quick and easy to remember answers that I've heard given to the definition of mercy and of grace is that grace is our receiving something that we don't deserve. Grace is our receiving something that we don't deserve. Mercy is our not receiving something that we do deserve. Mercy is our not receiving something that we do deserve. Now, while those meanings are similar in some ways, they also have a very discernible difference. Again, grace is our receiving something, a blessing, that we don't deserve. While mercy is our not receiving something, punishment, eternal condemnation, that we do deserve. And yes, that short quote is accurate. But it does fall short of a good biblical explanation. And that's what God is doing here in these verses that we'll be studying in Luke chapter 6. So if you'll turn there with me to verse 35 of Luke chapter 6. Read along with me. Verse 35, love your enemies. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Now, to say that the concept of mercy is strange to our natural mindset truly is an understatement. It's an understatement. We might not think so. Because we often will experience moments of compassion, especially towards those that we love and who love us back. But mercy, real mercy, is not simply feeling compassion. It is that, yes. But it's so much, much more. The concept of mercy seems to be best defined as extending unmerited forgiveness and forbearance to an offender by someone who has been truly violated by them. Also, though, has the authority to condemn them for their behaviors. But instead, they extend mercy. 
Now, by that definition, mercy is an unmerited gift that the offender does not deserve. And a similar kind of mercy can be given by you and me. But our gift of mercy is often arbitrary. We're subjective in who we want to show mercy towards. But that's not so with God. That's not so with God. God is able to forgive and to show mercy to even the vilest of offenders. The song that we sing to begin with, Amazing Grace, that's what it's all about. God is able to forgive and to show mercy to even the vilest of offenders. And you and I aren't able to comprehend that kind of mercy. And it's because we don't really know why God is able to show such mercy. His mercy is so gracious that it is completely incomprehensible to our thinking. One of the reasons that God's mercy is so incomprehensible is that it includes an element that you and I will never be able to be a part of. When God's mercy is shown, there's been an offense, one that cannot be forgiven by you or me. We want to forgive people for the things that they do, but folks, we really don't have the authority to forgive people of their sin. We can feel compassion towards them. We can have a form of forgiveness for what they might have done to us, but we really cannot forgive their sins. We don't have the authority to do that. Only God has that authority. And as God extends mercy to that person, He also pays the full debt of sin owed for that offense. Something you and I can't do. He pays the full penalty for that sin as He did by sending His beloved Son to die on the cross to pay that penalty. Something that you and I, again, can never be able to do. And may I remind us again that it's not just the corrupt world who can't comprehend such mercies. It's you and me. It really is a problem within the heart of most devoted, very devoted Christian believers. Again, you and me. Yes, you and I who are saved, we've been born again into a whole new way of thinking. And yes, the mind of Christ does live within us by His Spirit. But still, even with so great a salvation residing within us, we struggle to grasp even the smallest measure of understanding of God's mercy and grace. There's still too many of those old thoughts and old attitudes and old temperaments and behaviors that are still yet remaining within us. And they cloud our ability to see the true goodness of God as He works within us and among us and within those people who are sinning against us. And to make matters even more difficult, the evil one, the devil is ever and always nestling at our shoulder, whispering these lies into our ear, telling us to continue with our old ways because those ways are comfortable to us. They're all that we've known all of our life. Those times where we want to hold tightly to our claim, to our right, to ourself, and also continually urging us to return evil when evil is put upon us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always at work. But thankfully, thankfully God's merciful hand is more powerful than our old nature and more powerful than that continual onslaught of the evil one. 
and by God's Spirit whom He has breathed into your and my souls. He's able to sanctify us and He's able to change us into completely new creatures. Sons of God who are able to deny the ways of the old flesh. That's what He's telling us here. Able to think new thoughts. We're able to have new attitudes and, and are able to reject the temperament that once possessed and controlled our behaviors. The contrast between some of the old ways of the flesh and the new ways of the Holy Spirit is drawn for us here in these words that I'll read for us in a moment. Here Jesus gives us simple, rational thoughts so that we can begin to see the difference between who we once were and who we are now, who we should be. Verse 32 of chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Notice this contrast. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, unbelievers, love those who love them back. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Unbelievers. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive back as much. But love your enemies. This is the tough part. But he tells us here, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. Folks, we we want our reward now. We want people to pay us back. We want people to do good to us now. But he's talking about, the Lord is talking about a reward here that most likely will be in our future, in our eternal future. Although he may reward us in this life, much of this reward will be taking place in our eternal future. But listen, as newly adopted sons of the Most High God, which we're called here, you and I have been changed. We really have been changed. We're no longer the people that we used to be. Before we became sons of God, as he calls us here, we had no choice in our actions and behaviors. We think we did, but we didn't. Romans chapter 8 tells us that very plainly. He says, The mind is set upon the things of the flesh. They do the things of the flesh. They do not do the things of the Spirit. Neither can they. We did not have the ability to do good things. We were completely controlled by our fleshly needs and desires, doing and responding according to our own best interests. We were those sinners that Jesus is talking about here in these words. But that is no longer so for us. Folks, that is no longer so for us. And no, that's not a prideful statement. That is a simple biblical truth. The word sinner that he's using here speaks of someone who is unsaved. In our salvation, the power and the control of our old sin nature, they were completely and utterly defeated. So utterly defeated that we now have a choice in the way that we respond to all those encounters of life. And no, that doesn't mean that at some point we'll cease to be tempted. That'll never take place. The tempter will never cease to tempt us to return back to that old nature. That's what the devil does, folks. That's who he is. That's what he does. But now his opportunities have been changed since our salvation. 
Now he can no longer actually take control over us. The only power that the tempter can have in our life is the power that we willingly allow him to have and no more. Let me say that again. The only power that our own flesh and the devil have is the power that we willingly allow them to have and no more. Folks, a truly amazing change has been wrought within us. And while that change may not as yet show all of the goodness that it's capable of showing, it's there. It's there nonetheless. And we simply need to be more intentional in our efforts to take hold of it. And note carefully that that is the way, the only way that we must do it. By intentionally taking hold of God's spiritual power and presence within us. And not simply by trying to develop good habits. That's one of the difficult understandings within our church today. People are always trying to develop their own good habits. That does not happen. Good behavior and good habits will follow only as we take hold of the presence of the Holy Spirit of Christ within us. And God tells us that very plainly in verses such as Zechariah chapter 4, where he says to us, It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. It is not by your might, my might, my power, my efforts, but by the Spirit, saith the Lord. When and as we listen to the urging of God's Spirit within us, and He does it all during our day, if we just listen. That's why Jesus says to us, but I say to you who hear, we have to listen. So when and as we listen to the urging of God's Spirit within us, we'll begin to act and we'll begin to respond in ways that were once impossible for us. Listen to these words, Luke Chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Oh, so difficult to do. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to anyone who asks of you. Something you and I do not like to do. Give to anyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Let me say this again. When you and I have the Spirit of Christ abiding within our souls, we truly do become different. We are changed by the salvation that he brings to us. But let me stop here for a moment and ask a gospel question. This is a gospel question. These truths that I've been giving us here today, they're true only for those who have fully received Christ into their hearts. I'm compelled by God's Holy Spirit to confront each of us today again with this question. Have we? Have you? Have I? truly repented of our sins and truly received Christ into our hearts? Have I taken all of the steps necessary? Have you taken all of the steps necessary to allow the Holy Spirit to live within you? 
as I've said on other occasions, I'm fully convinced that there are so many churches across our world today that are packed with people who want to be Christians but have failed to take that final step to complete their surrender of their heart to Christ. And folks, that is the only condition that God accepts. It's full surrender. If a person holds anything back, then salvation really might not be complete. And that's why they struggle so much. So the question must be asked of us here today. Have you, have I, fully surrendered our lives into the saving hands of Christ? May I ask us to pause here for a moment. Bow our heads and pray about this. Pray with me, if you will. Lord Jesus, you know each of our hearts. You know my heart intimately. And I do. Lord Jesus, right now, surrender my heart all over again into your loving hands. Yes, I've done it before, but Lord, I want to do it. I want to do this all over again. I want to surrender my heart into your loving hand. And I accept and I receive your loving salvation and the presence of your Holy Spirit into my life. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, Let me go back and repeat some of the words that I've been saying again. That a really amazing change has been wrought within each of us who have received God's merciful salvation. Our part now is to simply surrender to His special power and abiding presence within us. It's then, folks, and it's only then, that our conscious behavior, our responses will begin to show forth the mercies that are present within Christ Jesus who lives within us. In these words, we're being urged to look beyond the moment of difficulty, to look beyond that face of that person who is mistreating us, and instead to look for the special workings of God. Who knows? Who knows what God might wrought out of some suffering that you or I might endure. And folks, that kind of suffering usually is temporary. It's only for a few minutes or a few days. But the one that's doing it, their suffering is going to last an eternity if they don't change. Let me take a moment and emphasize again this special truth that Jesus is making here. One that we spoke about at length in last week's message. But it's so very important. Here in verse 35, he tells us that In our receiving Christ as our Savior, we become sons of the Most High. Sons of the Most High. What that means is that we now have a greater responsibility on our shoulders than we had before our salvation. Sons and daughters of the King must take on and be about the work of their Father. Folks, that's the exact words that the Lord Jesus said when he was 12 years old and he was there in the temple with those priests and his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, came looking for him. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I should be about, that I must be about my father's business? All of the things that you and I used to be about, folks, have now changed. They've now changed. 
We cannot simply accept Christ as our Savior and then get on about our usual business. Too many people walk that aisle and they say that sinner's prayer. And then they get up and they go and get about their old business. The same old business that they had been about all the years. But we can't do that. Because our business, our purpose in life has been changed. We can never go back to the old ways. Those old habits and attitudes and temperaments. They are no longer ours. We are different people and we must be about different things. Now whether we consciously realize it or not, we now have within us a completely new perspective. New thought processes. We can now look below and beyond the surface of whatever is taking place in front of us. Those difficult times. And we can now look into the mysteries of God, what He's doing in this difficult circumstance in our life. I want to give us an up-close-and-personal example. It's one that's prevalent, so prevalent in today's times. We mentioned it in an earlier message, but it's so appropriate to this matter of mercy and grace that we're studying here today. And so I want to speak about it again. As we know in today's culture, and also within some of our own families, marriages are suffering and breaking apart at alarming rates. And what is supposed to take place in those troubled marriages when one of them, perhaps the husband or the wife, has unknowingly married an unbeliever? Or perhaps after they're married, one of them becomes a believer, but the other doesn't. What are they to do? What are they to do? Here in these scriptures, God has a special instruction about the way that we should respond. It's a response that is filled with compassion and mercy and grace. And not at all the kind of response that we once would have had before the Spirit of Christ came to abide within us. Listen to these words. Make a note of where these are because I'm sure you're going to have these circumstances within either your own marriage or but especially within your family. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Note carefully the mercy that God has put into an otherwise very difficult circumstance of life. Here beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, God tells us, If a brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving, listen, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And listen, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Mysterious words. Wonderful words. Within these words is a clear call for husbands and wives to step beyond their usual angry and bitter responses of the heart and to instead live quietly as gentle witnesses of Christ to their spouse. No bargaining, as so many of the 
modern day counselors recommend. None of the usual, you do this and I'll do that, or you give this up and I'll give that up. It's instead a kind of love that is only possible for someone who is in Christ. It's a kind of love that has mercy at the center of its responses. It's a kind of love that simply and continually gives, but asks nothing in return. Continually giving, but asking nothing in return. And the desired result is not just to keep that marriage together. That is good, yes, but the real desired result reaches on into eternity. Here God is clearly speaking about the salvation of an unsaved soul. So it's not just keeping that marriage together. It is the very salvation of that unsaved spouse. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife as, as he watches her Christianly behavior. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. And then he goes on in verse 16, and he says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And then, folks, listen, to make these matters even more important, God tells us by that by doing this, the children can also be saved. Listen to these words again. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, listen, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now I confess to you that I don't fully understand these words, but they clearly do tell us that the children of unsaved parents are unclean. That's a reference to the lack of salvation within their souls. But as both husband and wife come to believe in Christ, he tells us here, the holiness of the parents then somehow cover over the children. That is a very special promise and a gift of grace from God. Grace and mercy. This, folks, is just one more reason for us to be faithful in our resolve to join with the Lord Jesus in the way that He shows mercy, and in the way that He wants to rearrange our behaviors and our lifestyle. The changes that He will make in us will not only save our marriages, those same changes can save our children, can save our blessed children. What a blessed promise and hope that is. This is one of the mysteries of the mercies of God that He allows us to enjoy. No, we don't know exactly how He works His will within the souls of men and women to bring them to salvation in these circumstances. But what He's saying here is this. He's saying, test me in this and see what I will do. Who knows what I might do within what looks like an irreconcilable family situation. Those words again. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife? Folks, God is good. And He does only good things. And He's merciful. And He's kind to us even when we are at our worst. Those words I just read for us. Verse 35. He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So then our question for each of us 
as we close is this. Must we always be content with crumbs that fall from the master's table? Only crumbs of the blessed Christianity that he is offering to us. Is it not time for you and I to pull up a chair and begin to dine with our Lord as one of his sons and daughters would do? What a blessed thought. Because in the salvation that Christ brings into our souls, you and I truly have become sons and daughters of God. And as his sons and daughters, we now have new personalities, new behaviors, and we need to reach on forward and to become the new person that God has made each of us to be in our salvation. Listen to these words and we'll close. He tells us, love your enemy. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High God. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Let's pray.